Genesis 37. If you're not already there, we're going to be walking through this chapter. I'm excited about starting the Joseph story. Uh, it's the ending of the book of Genesis. And we're going to talk a little bit today in the first part of the sermon about the whole, the story as a whole and its concept of literature. Uh, we have about 10 more sermons before we are done with the book of Genesis. And so we'll be covering it in that amount of time. Uh, we, we've kind of expressed already our, our desire as we move on um, through Genesis. We'll be coming back to Exodus at some point. Uh, we're going to work our way through the entirety of the Pentateuch, but we're going to be breaking that up with other series along the way. And so after we finish this, we're going to be heading to the book of Ephesians and the book of Proverbs for sermons. Um, but this, this book has been really encouraging to me so far, just a, a brief word about that. It's encouraging theologically to see how prevalent Christ is in the book of Genesis. This is a book about Jesus, long before Jesus in his human nature existed on this earth, though his divine nature is eternal. But also, I've been just as a bit of a nerdy kind of guy, I've been really just excited about the amazing literature that Genesis is too. And I know it's inspired scripture, so as far as literature goes, that's a little bit unfair when you have the Holy Spirit who's, you know, writing things. Uh, but from a human perspective, uh, Moses, the author, was a fantastic writer and just the way he writes things. And we see that in the Genesis story. Uh, Genesis part one, especially the Joseph story, Genesis part one told the story, if you remember, about God making a place and then a people for his holy presence. And it was the first part of that, and we saw how he did that in the first five sections, uh, the what became of sections. We're hitting the last one today, so I wanted to quickly review that. So what became of the heavens and the earth that God made, the place for his glory? Well, we find out that it became a place of cursing because of man's sin, the people that he'd made. But God is not intent to allow sin to rule, and so he created um, a, had a plan, already eternal plan in place, but then he began to create or produce amongst the people along the way individuals that would arise up who would be pictures of the final deliverance. And so we see Adam, what became of Adam when we read about him in the first part, and then this guy named Noah shows up, and he's an important individual, especially in the sons of Noah, his son Shem is an important person. And that really took the first part of Genesis. The second part focused on, on one particular son of Shem, a man named Terah. And Terah had three sons too, and one of his sons is also very important, and we know more about him than anyone else probably in the book of Genesis, and that's the person Abraham. Abraham had sons. He had two sons, Jacob, uh, two sons Isaac and Ishmael. Uh, Isaac really is the focus here. And then Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau, and Jacob really occupies the primary place after Abraham in the second part of Genesis. Jacob's really important, not just in the person, but because he becomes, or he, we find out that he is the chosen one, the one elect, regardless, before he could either do good or evil, chosen by God to be the father of the tribe become nation through whom the snake crusher, the deliverer, the Christ will come. And so he has 12 particular tribal sons or chieftains that will become. And of those 12 sons, we will find out that one of them named Judah is the tribe through whom the Messiah will come. So when you're reading Genesis, and we've seen so far, we expect, well, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. And yet, this last part of Genesis doesn't give us the history of Judah, who would be the the one through whom the Messiah would come. And it's, it's a bit surprising. It's not what he's done to this point. What he's done to this point is he's hit these, the main figures in bringing the Messiah. And so the first question that comes up is, well, why, does, why do we not have Judah? Why, why is he not the guy talked about? Instead, Joseph. In fact, Joseph won't even, no tribes will even bear Joseph's name. His two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, will be two tribes within this twelve will found, form the foundation of God's people who, through whom the Messiah will come. 
But Joseph, his, as a name, really is sort of forgotten. Furthermore, his two sons, the tribes that come from his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, actually end up being the worst of the worst, tribally speaking. They're some of the most wicked. They're wiped out pretty quickly in God's judgment. So the big question is, why then, at the end of the book of Genesis, do we close with the story of Joseph? He's not in the Messianic line. His offspring don't do anything fantastic. In fact, they're kind of disappointing. And yet, when you read the story of Joseph, if you've read it before, you know that like Joseph is like a breath of fresh air morally in all that we've read in Genesis. Like everything about Joseph mentioned is pretty positive. So it's kind of weird, right? We've been seeing, we've been noting, well, Abraham was good. Ah, he had problems. And Isaac, well, he had problems. Jacob, well, he was a piece of work, right? And, and yet, Joseph is like, wow, this actually feels good to read about Joseph a little bit. Now, that's not to say Judah doesn't show up. Judah is the second most important person that shows up through the stories of Joseph. So he's there, but it's the story of Joseph, really. This is also unique because in the story of Joseph, it's, it's unique in Genesis, literally speaking, because we, lock, we looked at many different things and happening in Abraham's life and his ups and downs and different events and things that went on and in. And Isaac, too, there was more kind of movements around and different events in his life, though shorter, told in a shorter way. And Jacob, I mean, we talked a lot about the different things that happened in Jacob's life, but the Joseph story really is one story. It's one thing happening. In fact, we really should be reading today Genesis 37 through Genesis 50, because it's really one literary unit. In fact, you could probably guess, as has happened throughout this book of Genesis, it is indeed one long chiasm, one long story um, with parallel ideas working Genesis 37 through 50. Now, I know you probably cannot read anything that I have up there. This is just to illustrate it for you. Um, that it is a chiasm. So this is a self-contained story about an apparently insignificant, as far as offspring goes, one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And yet it's one of the best stories we read in Genesis, right? As far as like feeling like we could cheer for the good guy and boo for the bad guys. What is going on? What's the point of the story? What's, what's, what's the, the issue here? Why conclude Genesis with the story of Joseph? Why not conclude with the story of one of the other sons or something else, like especially Judah? There's four reasons, four things that the story of Joseph does for us in its whole. We're obviously not going to look at the whole thing today. We're going to look at one chapter, the beginning. But there are four things that happen in the story of Joseph. First, it functions as a historical bridge. The story of Joseph, Joseph brings us to the deliverance in the book of Exodus, right? So we know how did the people, the family now established in the promised land, the 12 sons and tribes, how did they go from, and so Jacob comes back and settles with his son in the land and he's back home to the book of Exodus, which Exodus 1.13 reads, so the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. They made their lives bitter and hard bondage. How do we go there? Well, this story is going to tell us how we get to the Exodus, Moses and the deliverance from Egypt. So it's a historical bridge. It is, Joseph's story is, and we'll see more of this. This is just introductory, a messianic shadow. Now, allegorists have a field day with the story of Joseph. Go way beyond biblical warrant. An example of that, we read how Joseph was taken out of the pit and given to the Egyptians. Ancient scholars would say that that is foreshadowing Christ's resurrection from the grave. And the only thing that can connect that is the idea they're coming up. And my point is, if that's what you see in that, then anytime someone comes up out of something is for, like foreshadowing, like that's really stretching it. And the allegorists do that with Joseph. Part of the reason they do, by the way, to their credit, is that he's such a good figure in the stories. It's hard not to see him as somehow pointing us toward Christ. So I'm not talking about the extreme allegorist view. It's not an allegory. 
This is a true story of a person. But he is a messianic figure. There is some shadows of Christ there. He is the one who himself is sacrificed to save his brothers from themselves. In that way, there is a messianic picture here. Once again, we'll have to see the whole story to see that, but there'll be little snippets of that throughout these next nine sermons through Joseph, and then one last one on the whole. And then, as I already mentioned, he does function as a moral figure. We have to be careful when we're studying and interpreting the Bible. We have to be careful that we do not make the Bible a moral textbook. That we're just looking at, be like David, be like Abraham, don't be like Jacob, and so on and so on. It's not a story about what we're supposed to do or be, the Bible isn't. It is a story of God giving us His presence. It is the story of God's revelation of His Son to us and the way in which we can go back to Him because He's come to us. The Bible is about Christ. Yet Paul the Apostle wrote at the same time that these things were written for our, or sorry, the author of Hebrews, if it was Paul, uh, wrote that these things were written for our learning that we might either imitate or not imitate them. And so we should, while we're not trying to make the story of the Bible about us or about the characters, we can see moral and immoral expressions of humanity in the Bible, right? So example, last week, uh, when we, or uh, two weeks ago, when we talked about the brothers and the Shechemites and the rape of Dinah, I mean, there's some very clear moral guidelines in there, right? Some things we can really truly say, yeah, we shouldn't do that. That's, that's opposing God. And this is okay. You know, we, we can do that. And Joseph does function as a moral figure. Let me give you an example of how this is. He is portrayed, I think it's an intentional Hebrewism by Moses, the author. He is portrayed as the proverbial wise man. So if you read the story of Joseph and you read next to it, which is interesting we're going to be doing after this, Proverbs, you actually see Joseph is like the wise man in Proverbs. Let me give you some examples of that. None are perfect, and Joseph isn't, but he, above all, fears the Lord because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, he possesses integrity. He gives wise counsel to Pharaoh and Potiphar. He avoids the strange woman, the adulterous woman. He's diligent in his work. He's not a sloth. He's ultimately blessed by God, as Proverbs describes. So he is the proverbial wise man. He's the the son, wise son of Proverbs. And I think that's an intentional Hebrew writing point. Um, though Hebrew, Proverbs has not been written yet, the truths of Proverbs are long-standing before it was ever written. What constitutes a wise person is there long before the book of Proverbs even says this is what a wise person is. Conversely, as we're reading the story of Joseph, you could then imagine that the foils of Joseph are the proverbially unwise, the fools in Proverbs. We actually see that in the Genesis story. Joseph is the proverbially wise man. His brothers are the fools. They do the opposite. They do all the things that the Proverbs says a fool does. These are all intentions in this story. But the fourth one is the primary intention in the story. And this is why we should read it as one. Because Moses keeps us from seeing the punch of the point of the story until the very last chapters, only a few verses before the entire thing's over. Now, there's snippets along the way, and there's hints along the way and things said, but at the very end, there's the famous quote that we often say as Christians about the point of the Joseph story, and it is this. Joseph says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And that's as simple as the theological treatise of Joseph is. God's sovereign providence. It looks dark and darker and darker. And then when there's a glimmer of hope, that gets dashed. And it's over and over and over again. And what Joseph learns throughout his life experience is that even the darkness came through and from the throne of God. And the darkness had intention of light in the end. 
There is a sovereign providence that is beneath and waving all through this story. And that will be the continual uh, expression or application we'll bring as we go through these nine sermons through the story of Joseph. Anyways, that's, that's, the, that's the point of the book, of the story. I wanted to get that out uh, before we dive into this particular chapter. This really is now um, Joseph's story. In fact, I, I thought about really having creative uh, um, titles for my sermons and I thought what we do is like Joseph's story part one, Joseph's story part two, Joseph's story part three, because that's really what we're looking at. It's just these different parts to the same one story. So this is Joseph's story part one, chapter 37. I hope you paid attention and you read along in our scripture reading because we are not going to read the story again. We're just going to talk through it. The setting. Jacob and his family have moved down uh, to Hebron, the valley of Hebron. That should be very familiar to you because that is where Abraham <coughs> was buried in that region there. That is where Abraham and Isaac settled. They traveled around a lot and now Jacob settles in the place of his forefathers in the valley of Hebron. You see his sons in our story went up to Shechem. That's where they got in trouble, remember? Uh, and jo Jacob left that area. They went up to Shechem and so they obviously are not afraid of going up to Shechem in order to uh, raise sheep and flocks. And we know from two weeks ago, the reason they're not afraid is there's no males, uh, warriors to harm them in any way. <coughs> they took care of that. The kind of the timing or the setting of what's going on here as far as the ages. So Joseph identifies, it's very rare in the scripture when we have a direct identification of an age of someone. Um, but Joseph is identified at 17 years of age. Now, if we do the math, that means the oldest, Reuben, is around 24, 25 years old. Um, uh, that's why we assumed that Dinah was around that same age. She's around the same age as Joseph, probably a year younger. And so this probably, I think it's very safe to say, this happens immediately or concurrently with uh, the issue with the Shechemites being wiped out by Jacob's children. So these are young men starting with starting their families. Uh, the tribes are being formed, the chieftains are being formed, and we're separating out, but we're still sort of in that mold of creating the, the chosen nation. It's not advanced. And right away, the first, there's, there's three scenes and then an epilogue at the end. In the first scene, Three times in this scene, our author reminds us just how much the brothers hated Joseph. So it says something, and then it'll say, and they hated him. And it'll say something, and they hated him even more. And it'll say something, and they hated him and envied him. So it's, you know, in the biblical literature, when you have threes, it's like building. And this is building. The animosity and hatred is building. And it, what the author is doing for us, he's setting the stage that makes sense of how you can have them essentially try to kill him, throw him in a pit, and enjoy lunch all during the time. They were burning with hatred for their brother Joseph. Why? Well, he's favored by his father. It's always a bad idea. The scripture portrays it often as a, that's not good. Why is he portrayed by his father? Well, the text tells us because he's Joseph's or Jacob's son of his old age. And if any of you are people who have children in your older age, you kind of know it's the stereotype. They get whatever way, whatever they want because after all, dad's just too tired to deal with it. Um, on top of that, Rachel, Joseph's mother, is, is dead. And that was Rachel's oldest son. Rachel's oldest son. Get it? The, the wife whom he loved. The favoritism instigated the brother's hatred. Then, on two occasions, or in, in that favoritism, we see, I forgot this, this is the, probably the most iconic part of Joseph's life, right? The coat, that his father gave him the coat. Now, it it's, appears to be a coat of many colors. Let me just point out for those of you that have a little bit of language nerdiness to you, the Hebrew doesn't actually say of many colors, uh, the Greek Septuagint is the what says that and why our translations reflect that. Um, and the Latin Vulgate says that. The Hebrew, as far as we can tell, just simply says a long coat. 
probably was many colors because that's the Septuagint interpretation of that. It's kind of an unimportant point, just an interesting thing. What did this mean, though? Is it just that he, like, had a colorful coat? I mean, because we were shopping the other day, and we saw some really colorful coats, coats, and we were like, that's ugly. <laughs> so what's the point of the coat of many colors, right? Uh, I don't think the many colors is the important part. I think the point part is it stands out. Uh, probably think of a royal robe. J- Jacob is promising in front of the brothers he's going to be your chieftain. He's going to be the first among equals. He's going to be the leader of the family next. He's going to get the birthright. Now, there's quite a few boys before that who would take offense at that. I mean, Jacob only had one brother to take offense of it. Joseph has several brothers to take offense of that. Probably not the smartest move by dad here. Then, the second thing is, Joseph has these dreams on two occasions. Okay, weird dreams, one having to do with earth, one having to do with heaven. First dream, Joseph has this strange dream one night, and... um, Bundles of wheat, sheaves, 11 of them. So that seems like a very obvious number, right? 11 of them stand up when the boys are binding their sheaves together, and 11 of them bow down to one sheaf, um, of which it's very obvious who that one sheaf is. It's Joseph. And they hate him. You think we're going to bow down to you? Second dream. Now it's stars, so we'll move to the heavenly realm. And not just 11 stars, but a sun and moon bow down, not to a figure, not to another thing, but to Joseph in the dream. And this is the one, this is a bridge too far for dad. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I was good with the stars, but when you add the sun and moon, I mean, I know that means me and your mother. Now, Rachel's dead, probably Leah here. I know that means us, and we're not doing that. You're the chieftain of them, not me. Um, So he rebukes Joseph for this dream. Now, and the brothers are angry and they envy him, it says, even more, for the dreams and what he says about it. Now, two quick side notes. First of all, a lot of people immediately jump in and go, man, that was stupid of Joseph. Have you met a 17-year-old boy? I mean, do you really think, like, I'm, I'm not criticizing him. I'm saying, like, he's 17. He had this really weird dream, and it seems like, and dad has already set the stage for him to be the leader. I actually think that he's not, it could be his ego here. I actually think it's youthful naivety. He appears that way in the whole story. He goes to find his brother and gets lost. I think he's a 17-year-old that actually is not ready for this kind of weight put on his shoulders. And I think he's just saying what he thinks. He's saying what's going on. Yeah, he probably should have done that, but there's no immorality in that. It doesn't appear. It just seems like, like well, next time, you know, keep your mouth shut. But he doesn't. And then you could add another thing. Who gave him the dream? I mean, we, do, we only know that it matters because it's actually what happens. So clearly, God gave him the dream, or at least allowed it to happen. So I, I just would encourage us not to assign blame to Joseph for any of this. Yes, he could have been an arrogant young man, but he's human. Quick, another side note about dreams. What do we make of Joseph's dreams? Indeed, the Joseph story from start to finish has lots of dreams in it prophetic dreams. The only one where Joseph dreams is this one. Uh, but knowing the end of the story, these two dreams are prophetic, but the biblical text is unclear as to why Joseph dreamed them. Perhaps God is encouraging Joseph on account of the great trauma he's soon to experience. Perhaps God is going before Joseph and saying, it's going to get really dark before it gets bright. Or perhaps this is just him telling Joseph in a veiled way his intention for his life. 
But what do we do with it today? Should we expect such dreams? And if you have a dream of sheaves bowing down, should you go tell everybody they're going to bow down to you? God clearly has in time past spoken through dreams and visions and prophets, though it's even in time past, it's not the typical way. It's usually, it's at, that's what makes it so surprising and so interesting. It's because it was atypical. It wasn't normal. If it was normal, then it wouldn't be such a big deal. But Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, which I want to read very quickly, clarifies what we do with a dream like this or dreamers today. God, who at various times and in various ways, like dreams, spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days, the last days Jesus says is the time since his ascension and beyond, so today, has in these last days spoken to us by implication, not through dreams and in various ways in various times, these past days has spoken to us by or through His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds. And Hebrews goes on to explain that, and we don't have time for a treatise on dreams today. However, the book of Hebrews makes it clear that the final word, the revelatory word from God, came through and in Jesus Christ. And then Jesus, in John chapter 15, tells those disciples, those twelve uh, and I think later he tells Paul the same thing, but that's another story there. Um, the Spirit, he gives them the Spirit of God, who he says, the Spirit will teach you all things, everything that I have spoken to you. In other words, when Jesus and the official apostolic uh, arm of Jesus ended, so did the active, ongoing voice from heaven. The final word is the word from Jesus. Say, well, then God doesn't speak today? Absolutely. The Holy Spirit takes what He has spoken and teaches us this. And so, no, we don't look to have dreams of sheaves and sun and moon and stars. Instead, we look to the Word. I heard a person say, I suppose it's a bit snarky, but I think it communicates it well, said, if you want to hear God speak, read your Bible. If you want to hear Him speak audibly, read it out loud. <laughs> and the idea there is, this is the Word from heaven in these last days. Side note, because we're going to hit dreams, I just didn't want to have to do more of that. Okay, scene one ends with Joseph is hated. Scene two, actually interesting, uh, literarily, scene two begins with Jacob sending Joseph to his brothers and concludes with the brothers sending Joseph's bloody coat back to their father. And so it's kind of uh, bracketed by the sending. So Jacob sends Joseph to the brothers. Go get them, see how they're doing. Why would he do that? Well, we've read, if you read earlier, you noticed that Jake, Joseph, had a, jo, Joseph had a habit that Jacob appreciated. When his brothers did evil things, he'd come tell dad, which got him into trouble. Not with Jacob, with the brothers. So he says, go see what's going on. <laughs> They've been a while in Shechem. I need you to go check on them. Obviously, Jacob is not sending Joseph to see if they need Joseph's help. All right, so he goes, he sends there. They see him afar off. Well, first of all, I forgot the little part that's really kind of, I didn't just pitch the story. He gets lost looking for him. He gets lost. That, this, I think this is portraying the naivety here, right? The inexperience that he has. It's not a criticism. He's just inexperienced. It makes sense if you're the favored son with the beautiful coat. You don't, probably don't go out in the fields too much and do the ways of the world, right? He gets lost. And the stranger has to come and point him out and say, hey, I think your brothers went to Dotham. He's like, oh, that's a long ways away. So he goes to Dotham, and now they see him coming. And they are angry, and there's that dreamer. And so they conspire to kill him, not just to hurt him, not to teach him a lesson, to end him. They conspire to kill him. They've got an idea. We'll kill him, throw his body in a pit. Dad will never know that he even got to us. Seems like a pretty foolproof plan. 
Reuben, on the other hand, the firstborn, the one who has the responsibility, the oldest, he's like, let's not kill him. I do think Reuben's motives are mixed. I do think Reuben doesn't want Joseph to die. He says he wants to rescue him and take him back to his father. But when Reuben thinks he dies or thinks he's gone, Reuben's primary concern is that he's going to, where he says, where am I going to go now? I, I'm father, <laughs> I'm the oldest. It was my responsibility. I'm in trouble. So I think it's a mixed motive, right? Um, he does seem to care for Joseph, but he also <laughs> is deeply concerned about losing everything. But Reuben has a plan. He's like, why don't you just throw him in the pit? Now, what he's saying, throw him in the pit, is he's convincing the brothers, let him die slowly. Like, let him just die of natural causes. And then, unnaturally caused, but then you don't have blood on your hands. You didn't actually kill him, but he's dead. But of course, we know Reuben's like, so I can come later and get him out. Now, we have no idea, except that the story tells us this. Reuben leaves for some reason. Sheep running away or something. So Reuben leaves, and while he's gone, the brothers, they decide to have a meal. That is one of the most chilling verses in this story, at least to me. Because put yourself in the time and place. In verse 25, what do you think 17-year-old Joseph's doing in this dry pit Stripped of his coat. What anybody, what would you do if you were thrown into a pit fearing your brothers? I'd be screaming my head off. I'd be crying. I'd be like, help. Give me, I'm clawing at the dirt. And they sit down to eat while the screams of their brother dying echo in their ears. Man, that's chilling, isn't it? They sit down to have a meal, it says in verse 25. Coincidentally, Reuben's gone, the only one who seemed to care. Joseph's probably screaming. They're enjoying their meal. And coincidentally, a roving band or a caravan of Ishmaelites, Midianites, same, same idea, same meaning, comes through. Traders, merchants, they don't only trade in goods, they trade in human souls and people. The brothers have a great idea, especially led by Judah. Now, here's where he enters into the story. Judah and the other brothers have an idea, says there's no profit to us if he's dead. What could be better than getting rid of Joseph? Making money and getting rid of Joseph. So they sell him to these Ishmaelites. Now, did you catch the irony of this? There's a lot of irony in the telling of the story of Joseph. You maybe noted this. These are Ishmaelites. Who are the Ishmaelites? They are descendants of Ishmael. Who is Ishmael? That's Abraham's son through an Egyptian woman who was brought up out of Egypt as a slave who had the child Ishmael because of Abraham and Sarah's unbelief and now his descendants are going to take Jacob's son Joseph down into Egypt as a slave. And the irony is rich there. There's reasons for this. I think there's theological reasons for it, but there are also just literary reasons for it. The story is filled with these sort of ironic statements, ironic things. And people say, well, that, that's a very way of, good way of crafting or telling a story. It absolutely is. It's also, have you ever noticed that we use this phrase often that sometimes the truth is stranger than fiction? And, sometimes, and I think that, like, look at your life and look at lives of people around you. Is there not always these rich ironies? Especially in the fact that you're... That, Joseph's great-grandpa paved the way for the people to take him as a slave into Egypt. Now, we'll come back to that a little bit more at the end. So Joseph is now sold, and the boys are thinking, good for us, he's gone for good. 
Now Reuben comes back, and he is distraught. Like I said, it says in the text, he says, um, where am I going to go? In other words, I won't be able to be, live a million miles near Jacob, near my dad. I'm going to be in exile, be like Cain, driven from the presence of my brothers. He's 24, 25 years old here. So now they have to cover it up. So how are they going to cover it up? Well, we have his coat. Dip it in goat's blood. Send it. That's why they say the literary kind. They send it back. They take it with them, but they send it back. It's very possible. It doesn't say this, but it seems like when it says they send it and then they came back, they may have sent it by a servant so that they could show up and be just as surprised as Jacob is. Because they asked the question, is that your son's coat? So they're trying to distance themselves, it seems like, from the old event. So they've got this all worked out. They're geniuses, they think. So they dip it in goat's blood and they send it back. Oh, the irony is rich again. Was it not Jacob who had disguised himself as his brother Esau and took his coat upon him? And then while Rachel uh, cooked a meal of goat, and now he is going to be deceived by his sons with a coat dipped in goat's blood? Once again, the irony here, it's like it's dripping from these pages. Scene two ends and scene three begins. And Jacob is in agony. Weeping, wailing, throwing sackcloth on himself, tearing his clothes, falling on the ground, wailing, weeping. And once again, if, if the f most chilling statement in this story is the brothers having a meal, the second most chilling is it says that all his sons and daughters, and that likely means daughters-in-law, try to comfort him. Like, wait a minute. The comforters are the perpetrators. The victim, Joseph and his father, are being hugged by the apparent murderers. And Jacob says, a vicious beast has killed him. And he's right. Vicious beasts first attempted to kill him and then sold him. And he says, it says I, he would not be comforted. And he says, I will mourn like this for the rest of my life until I'm dead. Sometimes it's hard for us to get the agony just by reading it on a page. And in that sense, it's helpful to put yourself in Jacob's sandals. Think about you. Now we have an epilogue because there's more to the story, right? The epilogue ends with, however, he wasn't dead. The Midianites sold him to Potiphar, captain of Egypt's guard. Story's not over. There's more to come. What do we do with part one? I mean, it's a real, I said I was excited about this story because the Joseph story is gripping in so many ways, right? It is theological, it is biblical, it is Christological. Uh, it's also just good story, right? It's just, it's just interesting. It's difficult to apply the story without going to the end, right? It's really difficult to do that. We're going to not go to the end, but kinda. There is a moral issue here when we think about this threefold way of applying these stories. Our storyteller's inspired intent in this first part is indeed to contrast Joseph with his brothers. There's a big contrast here. The worst thing in this story that we can say about Joseph is that he told his dream. Now, he may have done other things. He was a sinner. 
but the story doesn't tell us about that. All it tells us, sort of like the thing he probably shouldn't have done that he did, was tell his brothers the dream. And we only know that he probably shouldn't have done that, partly because of the outcome, and also because Jacob rebukes him for it. But only when Jacob is sort of the target. <laughs> However, the clear evil, vindictiveness, hatred, just drips from this story about the brothers, right? So if you're looking at a contrasting scenario, you definitely see the innocent and the guilty, right? It's clear. If Joseph is portrayed, as I said before, as the essential wise man in the biblical wisdom literature of Proverbs, it stands to reason that the brothers are the opposite. Turn with me to Proverbs, since we talk about Joseph in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 6. One of the most important paragraphs in the first part of Proverbs is Proverbs chapter 6, verse 17. Or 16, actually. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to Him. So there's a list of seven things in Proverbs that are absolutely detestable to a holy God. And look at what they are. Haughty or haughty eyes or a proud look, part of the, we won't get into Proverbs today, but part of this, notice that these, most of these have like a body part associated with them. It's a poetic way of doing this. A proud look or haughty eyes. Who does he think he is? A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet swift to running to evil. A false witness who speaks lies. And one who sows discord among brothers. You could even say among father and brothers. Now what's fascinating to me is almost uh, switching the third and fourth one around. This is almost the chronological story of what the brothers did. They see him afar off and they're lifted up with pride. Who does he think he is? So they lie about what they're going to do. They conspire. They devise a wicked plan and then they take their hands to shed his blood and their feet are swift to do it. And then when they come home, they pour out lies to their father while they're comforting him and they sow discord. They destroy the family destroy their father in process. In other words, if Joseph is intended to be a moral wise man, a figurative wise man from Proverbs, clearly this text shows us that the brothers check every box on the wicked fool, right? Now this is just a way of application. This is a strong, strong verse, strong passage. Abomination, hatred. God hates proud eyes. God hates a lying tongue. God hates hands that shed innocent blood. God hates a heart devising wicked plans. God hates feet that are swift to run to evil. God hates false witnesses pouring out lies. And God hates one who soars discord among brothers. If God hates those things, should not God's people also hate those things? And isn't it easy to hate those things in other people? But isn't it kind of difficult to hate those things in ourselves? And yet this is what it's like, this is what godliness is. This isn't hate these things and you'll be a Christian. This is what Christians hate because it's what their God hates. And it's what Christians first and foremost look inside and say, God, remove these things from me. Joseph is a moral figure. There is a Christological, as I said, there are shadows here. Once again, we need to be very careful and not, not go too far and allegorize all of this. However, you who know the gospel story well surely already see how Joseph perhaps leads us toward Jesus as a picture here, as a type. The Son of God, Jesus, sent by the Father, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, his only begotten 
son, father sends the son toward his brothers, and he draws near them. Verse 18 talks about Joseph. It says, as he drew near them, the son draws near the wicked. But out of envy and jealousy, Matthew 27, 18, says that the Pharisees and scribes, chief priests, delivered Jesus out of envy. Same thing it says here about Joseph. They deliver him up to die. Let's kill him. They strip a robe off of him. Matthew 27, 28 through 30. The twist, it's always there's a twist when we're talking about a type of Christ. The twist is Joseph's blood's not on that robe. But Christ's blood, a goat takes his place. But Christ had no one to take his place for he was the goat who died He was the blood that was shed as the sacrifice for the brothers who gave him up. I don't think we want to be be careful that we don't add more to the picture than the New Testament does, but those are all things the New Testament adds to the picture, right? That's not from my brain, that's from Matthew. But I believe we are meant to read Joseph and be drawn toward Jesus. We're meant to be that. And I think you've got that. You've heard that as we've gone through Genesis. We are meant to read these stories and be drawn continually toward Jesus. That's how we're meant to read it. Jesus, who is better than Joseph to and for us. But as again, I said, the main application point has been and will be throughout this story, the theological treaties. The primary theme woven throughout the story of Joseph and even in just this one chapter is the grand mystery of God's sovereign providence. God doesn't deliver Joseph from all the harm and from the evil of his brothers. And maybe that's the first lesson in understanding divine providence, sovereignty. If we think that divine sovereignty means that we won't suffer, we've missed the concept and we've missed the point. Yet God is certainly kindly and wisely like a surgeon with a scalpel, not like a murderer with a baseball bat, but like a surgeon with a scalpel cutting and orchestrating and creating the environment, the purpose for Joseph and his brothers and accomplishing his goodwill in the darkness. Even in the minutiae, what seems like a horrible situation turns out to be the divine solution. Reuben, and and I know we, we go to the end of the story to see that, but without going to the end, we can still see that. Reuben's fear of losing his place and his inheritance, that's not a commendable motive. And yet that's what serves. Reuben's own selfish motive serves to preserve Joseph from murderous hands. God's in that. And the dry, scary pit ultimately serves as the means of deliverance for Joseph. Rather than them just slashing him, he's in the pit. But then Reuben leaves, and it seems like darkness descends again. Now the only defender is gone. And how coincidentally perfect that at just that time, a roving band of Ishmaelites who were created as a people centuries before by a sinful intent of God's servant Abraham and Sarah. I mean, what if they'd been 10 minutes earlier or 10 minutes later? What if it hadn't been while they're eating lunch, but they were scattered out in the field? You know the story of, jo- of Jonah? Is, we often talk about the Jonah and the whale, and we talk about how God's judging Jonah, God's disciplining Jonah. Uh, man, you see that? How would you like to get swallowed by a whale? Seems pretty horrible. And we forget that in that story, the whale is actually what saves Jonah from drowning in the water. 
often what we see as the dark hand of God's forsakenness is his very hand of good providence. And the caravan of Ishmaelites is actually his kind hand of saving for Joseph. Abraham's error with Hagar is turned into Joseph's deliverance. Judah's conscience kicks in at just the right time. And they sell Joseph rather than kill him. Now I'm getting ahead of myself. We will soon see that Joseph and his brother and his father actually will need Joseph to go to Egypt. They would die unless he goes to Egypt and they have no idea that that's the case. None of them know this. None of them can plan this. But isn't it an encouragement even through tears, beloved brothers and sisters, that God knows and plans it? We are short-sighted, we are impatient, we are weak creatures. God is not any of those. Often the very things that we think and feel are against us become the very things that eventually rescue us. No one could have imagined how God would turn the envy of the Jewish religious leaders and the arrest and the murder of Jesus into the means by which you and I are gifted eternal life and hope. But that's just the thing about a sovereign God. We only see a few good things, a lot of bad things going on in our lives and in our families, but he is at work accomplishing his good and wise and perfect will in a thousand unseen divine things. When we are in despair and fear and anxiety, lean further into divine sovereign providence, not away from it. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, in a sermon entitled The Happy Christian, wrote this. The worldling blesses God while he gives him plenty, but the Christian blesses him when he smites him. He believes God to be too wise to err and too good to be unkind. He trusts him when he cannot trace him, looks up to him in the darkest hour, and believes all is well. Amen.